The following is not intended to provide direct medical, psychiatric, or substance use treatment advice and is not a substitute for evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. Hello, I'm Dr. Ed Bellotti, and this is Psyched for Mental Health, empowering you with trustworthy information about modern psychiatry. This podcast is a companion to webshrink.com, the platform for seekers and providers of mental health care. On webshrink.com, we try to bring you current news and information about important topics in mental health. But we also try to bring you personal stories, personal stories of individuals who have struggled with or may be struggling with different kinds of mental health issues, how it's affected their lives, how they've coped, whether they've received treatment and what their journey has been like. This is the first episode of our podcast series where we're going to do just that. I was listening to the podcast of our creative producer, Nate Tower, who's the owner and operator of Nonsensible Productions, whose name you've probably heard at the tail end of our podcast episodes. I was listening to his podcast called Noncasting. I was pleasantly surprised to hear him release an episode where he discussed his own experiences with anxiety and anxiety medications. So I thought, well, we're missing what's right in front of us here. Why don't we talk to Nate about his own personal experiences as part of Psych for Mental Health? So I'm very pleased to be in studio today with Nate Tower. Welcome, Nate. Thank you very much. This is great. So I'm a psychiatrist. I'm not your psychiatrist. I only know you in the context of our relationship with uh, producing a podcast together. But if it's okay with you, I'm going to kind of interview you like I would wearing my psychiatrist hat today. Absolutely. That sounds good. I'm interested in hearing more about your experience with anxiety. I found your episode on this topic to be very interesting in the, in the vivid and unconventional ways that you described your decision-making and your experiences with symptoms and treatment and medication. And I really want to know more about what anxiety has been like for you. How long have you been struggling with this? When did it start? Yeah, I think hindsight is twenty twenty. So a lot of uh, what's informed my decision making and my thinking has kind of been this journey of learning about um, why I may have experienced certain anxieties or depression along the way, from childhood to early adulthood to having a career to uh, raising a family, and I I get to benefit from. I think all the experiences leading up to having a little bit more knowledge in the tank when it comes to knowing what works for me and what doesn't. And at this stage, I'm, I'm 39 years old. I feel like I have a pretty good arsenal and kind of a toolkit of what has worked and what doesn't work. But right out the gate, I did not have that. I think that's something that's really important. There is no overnight solution. It takes a while to kind of understand how you can alleviate some of the symptoms and some of the just daily disruptors when you're experiencing anxiety or depression. So going back, there were indications in my childhood of being an anxious kid. Uh, It's hard to sort of discuss that now, you know, with the backdrop of kids these days and how prevalent anxiety is just how often you hear that, oh, all the kids are so anxious these days. My daughter, who's six and a half, my son, who's three, uh, they're going to live a very different childhood than I had. There's a lot more information out there. There's a lot more information for parents. Um, But, you know, growing up and just kind of going day by day and not having as much information, I definitely had anxiety way back almost as far back as I can remember. I had no idea that's what it was then. So it it came out in a lot of different ways. 
uh, agitation. I think a lot of times what kind of seemed as ADHD, although I was never diagnosed with ADHD, I was tested for it, but um, attention span and just like, a, uh, you know, I, I, as I mentioned in the podcast, which I, I think is the best way I can articulate it, imagine driving and really paying attention to your instruments and your, your speedometer and everything and sort of forgetting to watch the road. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's sort of the experience that as I've gotten older, I can best describe it because I think a lot of like my high school experience was I just wasn't kind of, I, I, I often forgot to press record and kind of be present in what was around me. I was really, really focused on what was inside me and what was going on. It's a brilliant metaphor, uh, the dashboard instruments, because, you know, I tell patients quite often, if you feel like you're losing your memory or you're forgetful or you have attention deficit issues, much of it can be explained by anxiety because when you're feeling that anxious, you're so preoccupied with your internal state exactly that it's hard to focus on what's happening around you or where you left your keys or you know what someone just said or um, algebra in high school <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so you're 39 you have two young children you're married and yep. you're running a small business that you founded correct what is the anxiety like is it persistent today or is it i mean you're describing you know your experience as a kid which is not unusual for children, especially, like you said, back in those times, there was less awareness and a tendency to just sort of, you know, uh, this is your personality. We're now aware that sometimes those things cross a line into what can be considered pathology if it's interfering with normal function. Yeah. So how does your anxiety manifest now? Is it kind of always there or... At some low level, or does it come in episodes? Is it in certain environments or situations? Do you have panic attacks? Yeah, so uh, all of the above, but at, at different stages. And in those different stages, I learned more about each of those symptoms. So, you know, in my young career, in my 20s, I moved to New York City, and, and that was incredibly overwhelming for me. Uh, it was just a total shock to my system. Uh, and throughout my career, there was a lot of those types of experiences where I was just very, very heightened, very sensitive. Um, and I would start to experience panic attacks, uh, especially when faced with presenting or some type of spotlight situation. And I guess even going further back, you know, that, that started in college. It was just around the time that I started to become more acutely aware of what they were. At first, they were feelings and things that were happening, and you kind of put that like something is wrong with me. This doesn't appear to be happening to everyone else. Um, and then you get the labels. And then the labels were a, a big turning point for me where, you, you know, you start doing your own research. I was, I was doing cognitive and talk therapy through much of this. I, I've never been opposed to therapy and I think that's been a large part of my upbringing and just kind of a, a positive discussion around talking and also I found you know as as I grew up that talking was a good release for me anyhow I could unload a bit so that's always been a plus but I experienced most of these things as I kind of grew in like the workplace um, and just doing a lot of internal battling a lot of kind of damaging negative talk uh, because I was experiencing these things. As you start to figure out things like panic attacks, as simple as like, I don't want to have them anymore, you're presented with the medications that are available and then you're presented with, uh, or I was fortunately, you know, the cognitive side, how exercise can support these things, how, you know, healthy eating, how meditation, um, but, you know, when I lived in New York, I was doing none of those things. Um, but that really was the kind of start of my more adult battle on like, well, how do we get these things to stop? 
And that was maybe the wrong goal at the time, but I definitely think at, at that stage, it was like, I want these things to stop. I just kind of wanted to be quote unquote normal, <laughs> which was not correct. Well, of course. And the, the feelings are unpleasant and you want to be able to function in, a, in an environment and feel like you're able to be successful and you're able to be productive. Um, so you, you, you went to New York City. Where, where did you come from? Where were you born and raised? Yeah, I was born and raised in Kennebunk, just south of Portland here, um, in a pretty you know, rural slash suburban setting. A lot of independence as a kid. So a lot of really positive things in my childhood, um, but some, some trauma along the way. And um, I grew up in Kennebunk, you know, went to college on the North Shore of Boston, a pretty decent college experience. I, I probably would have, you know, done it differently. But <laughs> and then I actually had the opportunity after college to move to New Zealand for a year. That was a really incredible experience, but at that time and in my life with anxiety and depression, um, that was really hard. It, traveling like that, I saw a lot of people around me, your typical kind of hostile goers and uh, broke travelers, and it was a very free-spirited group. Looking back, I wish so badly I could have been that, but you know, a lot of what I've learned explains why I couldn't. That experience was incredibly positive for many reasons, but I did have this kind of obsession of like, you know, I should be getting back and, and really starting this thing, uh, you know, this this life. And instead, now I'm like, you idiot, like you had a free year to kind of roam New Zealand, which I did. But now I really know that was a lot of my own anxiety, kind of trying to take the reins. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of things that you've experienced that you you feel like now and looking back that you feel like you didn't fully experience because of the anxiety and you almost want to go back and have a chance to do them over again if you could. Yeah, and I, I think that informs or tries to inform a lot of how I live life now. I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of listening as a podcast producer. I spend a lot of time my wife hates that I walk around the house often with one ear butted in because I'm always kind of consuming. Um, and I've really had to find the balance, I think, through my 30s with what I kind of call the, the self-centered section and the self-help books. And also just the things that very fundamentally work. And those ingredients are very personal. So what I tried to do in this episode was was say kind of out loud that like, hey, for me, an SSRI is one of those ingredients. Over the years, I think, you know, hiding my anxiety was a large part of my existence with it. Like, don't let anybody become aware because it was like a weakness in my mind. And that itself takes up a great deal of mental energy to constantly be trying to keep that under wraps right physical and mental uh, you know it, it can be just a, a t an exhausting life to uh, try to like you know i said before appear as quote-unquote normal which is a very it makes sense why you look at it that way right it, it's if you're surviving and you're in that kind of fight or flight mode that's where your energy goes that's where your your attention goes and it's something that's wired into us biologically. I think it's a natural response, but as humans in our modern society, it doesn't always serve us well. That, I think, kind of empowered my take it or leave it mentality, which is, I had to say to myself first, and again, I don't, you can't do this out the gate because I needed to kind of get to this place, but where I got to eventually with it was like, this, this is me. You have no idea what anyone carries around, so you can't really judge that. So I got to the point where it was kind of like, I know what actually works, and there's some type of, you know, it's, a, it's an analogy, but it's also the reality too, like a, a pill to swallow. It's sort of acceptance of being like, you know, this is what I got. In a lot of ways, I'm incredibly healthy, um, and this is a place where, you know, I need to do some work. You've had a kind of uh, mixed 
love-hate relationship with the medication. You mentioned yeah. SSRIs, which just for the listeners, uh, most people are familiar with serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, including medications like fluoxetine, sertraline, citalopram, escitalopram, very widely prescribed antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications. But you've been on and off, yep. and it sounds like you know, you know it helps, but there is a part of you that wants to, what, not need it? Or tell, tell me more about what that's like. Not need it goes back to the very core sort of weakness piece. Um, which I think is hard to shed 100%. Throughout the medication journey, you know, a lot of times people say, well, like, think of someone with diabetes who needs insulin or, or think of someone with a thyroid condition who needs, you know, medication. And so it is, uh, that's a really easy analogy to understand. And it does make sense. I don't think I'll ever 100% be able to not be slightly it's not disappointment it's just like come on like i want to be able to kind of get on with it uh without needing a supplement in that way however to that i do really think that this is a very uh different world and knowing as much as i i kind of know about myself in terms of mental health at this stage it makes total sense what an ssri does for me is it sort of just brings me down to even and in the podcast episode um which is entitled zero salvation story start in miami beach the whole the whole thing was love uh, that title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was you know main winters are long last year um my wife and i were uh really finding that it was important to do as many things as we did together and as a family, it was also important for our relationship to continue as adults to explore things individually and to have that time. And it makes coming back to each other so much better. And so I was just like, I need to get warm. Tickets to Miami are really cheap. I've been down there a number of times. It's it's easy. It's accessible. It's hilarious. Uh, so... <laughs> I figured I would, you know, pack a few books, pack my running shoes, um, and just go down for kind of a low key, you know, I think I did five, four or five nights down there. And going into it, I also was sort of meditating on the idea that like I'd done over 200 days without Lexapro. So you can see how kind of tuned into <laughs> being yeah. off of it I was. There was always kind of a meter and thinking, I'm gauging right now, see where I'm at. Can I, can I continue on without this? How do I feel about that? So I had time to myself, which, you know, with two little kids and as busy as we are, it's not often the case. Uh, I took those days. Uh, I went to see some live music. I, I did a lot of walking around. I swam in the ocean and it wasn't really hard to come to the decision, which was like, I just, find that my life is more balanced when I have this in my system. And that was the first time I think as an adult, I was like, okay, that's, that's fine with me. There are so many different ways to look at it. And I agree with you. I think the sort of overused explanation of, well, you know, look, a person with High blood pressure has to take medication every day to control that, a person with diabetes, etc. I think it's an oversimplification, and I think it, it kind of dismisses the fact that there, there's a different kind of meaning when it comes to mental health, and it's so connected to... Societally as well. Societally, it's so connected to stigma... It's so connected to how we think about ourselves and how we think about others, and it's connected to our personalities, and what does it mean about me if I have to take a pill for um, a mental health condition? I think the acceptance of mental health treatment has come a long way in our society, but I still think those roots of stigma and doubt and 
questioning mistrust of psychiatry and psychiatric medications, uh, going back to the you know the uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, era, I think uh, still persist. But as a man, mm. do you think that the idea of you know boys and men are taught not just by their their own family of origin? but also by the society at large, that vulnerability, sensitivity, expressing one's feelings, these are not traits that are associated with manliness. Do you think that plays in? That was definitely something, and especially in, in therapy, that, that certainly came up. For me personally, that has not really been a part of it. I was brought up in a household where all the responsibilities were kind of shared and there wasn't really that like head kind of manly figure. <laughs> My stepdad would probably <laughs> be bummed out about that. But yeah, so I, I acknowledge that. But in my situation, not not as much. I can understand why that would come into play. I really feel like there's like this pre-pandemic and post-pandemic and it's like this big kind of the Berlin Wall, if you will, between the two eras as as much as uh, Gen Z, I think, gets a, a bad rap, they're doing a really great job bringing down that stigma. And that could be because all of them are anxious and depressed. Uh, but, uh, but I also think there's a general openness to discussing and acceptance around mental health issues and and the fact that, um, you know, they should not necessarily be something that you have to hide under the bed. Uh, they can be discussed openly with friends and family. And the one positive of the pandemic, I think, was that a lot of people during that time took a hard look at what they were doing, either professionally or, or personally. There was a lot of time, introspective time, to kind of just gauge and I feel like, and maybe because I'm slightly tuned into it and I, I do read a, a lot in this space, but I feel like after the pandemic, there has been more of an openness to just discussing mental health without the judgment. And I think, honestly, that's a, that's a youth-led agenda, if you will. I agree, and I think it's a real positive, uh, you know, things are moving in the right direction. You're lucky that the gender issue didn't come in uh, to play because that is a source of a lot of uh, difficulty for a lot of adult men. Is you know, uh, if I feel if I feel deeply, if I'm sensitive, if I uh, even ask for help and admit vulnerability, then I'm less of a man, uh, and that's obviously uh, an irrational uh, falsehood that you know was the way that a lot of men kind of handled things in prior generations so i think you have to remember i spent a lot of time in my bedroom playing guitar to <laughs> punk rock albums and uh worshiping nirvana and uh so i wasn't exactly like the the quarterback of the football team like right. i wasn't from the the onset uh, very like intrigued by that macho attitude or so I tend to cling to kind of punk rock ethos over uh, male dominance. And maybe that's, <laughs> that, but that's my experience. Well, if the medication helps and you feel better, you feel more uh, level, more balanced on it, do you think you'll stop it again? Yeah, that's the cycle, right? And I think I said like, you know, a roadside carnival, it, it just kind of comes back because you... And it's interesting, I do have friends now privy to this, and this, conver this, this episode actually brought up some really cool conversations, uh, where that's a lot of people's experiences. It's the cycle. You, you get back on it, you start to feel even, and then you, you kind of, your memory fades a little bit about how uneven you, you once felt. And so it's this kind of, well, now I got this. I, I don't think I really even need the medication anymore. And I've definitely learned that lesson. Uh, my partner, my wife, Nova, has uh, been right there with me and she understands it well. And, 
you know, we've almost kind of like viewed some of these cycles together and discussed them openly. And it, I think it's just individually, everyone has to kind of figure that out um, because it is very easy to say, all right, I've sort of made it. You kind of make it to the light at the end of the tunnel and then you go off and you can do that intelligently by weaning off with a doctor or you can, you know, do it moronically and just stop, which is actually pretty <laughs> dangerous. Um, yes, definitely. And, recommend it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I've found that I can operate pretty well without the medication, but it's, it's, it's at a place that I have to work so hard to keep that level of pretty well that it, it keeps me from enjoying very simple things. It kind of kicks off again this uh, obsessive cycle of like checking in to see how my anxiety is, where I'm at. Uh, uh, and I'm just not putting, I'm not directing my energy in the right place. I, I find that I'm directing it inward a lot more than I would like to live my life. When I'm medicated, I'm able to kind of just quiet that a bit, not needing to check in constantly every 30 seconds to see how I'm feeling. And I, I just find that my attention and my awareness and my kind of intentional... Your ability to be present and in the moment and experience life and... It's heightened. Yeah. What about side effects? Yeah, so I played the game of finding which one works for me. You kind of, you try one, you may experience side effects or you may get lucky, but probably you're going to experience something. I went through, I think, five different ones. I started with Zoloft and that was not for me. There was a host of side effects. Okay. For me, this one, Lexapro, uh, there are minimal side effects. So specifically, if I don't take it with food, my stomach is incredibly nauseous. Got really lucky with sexual side effects. It doesn't affect me, but I have had um, ones that have. Uh, which, you know, there there's the piece as a male, I think is is important, you know, that that did scare me off as a male uh, libido and also, you know, just especially in your 20s to have that operation down <laughs> is, is not quite without <laughs> a doubt looking for. And it's a yeah, it's a problem for for men and women. But yeah, well, sure. I you know, and and I think I think for men, uh, if if there is anything that affects um, you know, erectile function, for example, if that is the case, it, it does generally freak men out and, you know, they'll go running for the hills and you know, never come back and try another. <laughs> but yeah, the side effects game is a real one. I actually, you know, transparently don't have a psychiatrist now, although I'm, I'm sitting one with for <laughs> for free. I don't even know your hourly rate, but um and I work with my general practitioner who's, you know, like we have a pretty good game plan in place where uh, but I still have a, you know, a, a counselor. I guess what I'm getting at is like it's definitely not a magic pill uh and it does not solve all your problems by any means. It's a it's a tool in your toolbox. There's a saying that goes you you need three things you need the pills you need the skills and you need the will so the pill just doesn't fix everything by itself what it can do though is certainly facilitate the ability to do more useful and productive work in therapy and ultimately it is not out of the question that one could reach a point where tapering off the medication makes sense because you've developed the skills and as we go through life we change our situations change circumstances change stressors change we change biologically we change psychologically and our ways of coping and dealing with stress can change and so I never tell a patient that you need to be on this medication for the rest of your life because I don't know that I don't have right. a crystal ball Has there ever been a time when you found yourself wanting to uh, self-medicate with uh, things like alcohol or drugs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And on the other side of the fence, which is, I think, a kind of revolution in psychedelics and, and understanding the benefits in that. And, I, you know, there's just a wide spectrum of areas you can explore. So uh, I have a great deal of alcoholism in my family. Uh, I've been keenly aware uh, since I was a young, young kid, I think the power of alcohol uh, and, and you know, both sides, how it can be really fun, but how it can be incredibly disruptive. I experienced both of those things firsthand. So, yeah, I mean, there have been times where I've stopped myself and, and you know, had to say, like, I'm, I'm consuming way too, too much alcohol. And for me, it's definitely alcohol is the, the easy go-to. I, I have a lot of friends in the cannabis space, uh, experience with cannabis, Cannabis hilariously is an accelerant for me <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of anxiety. Oh, I hear uh, this quite a bit. It's never been, um, it's never ever been the thing to you know chill me out. It's actually amongst my high school friends circle. You know, they always would make me sit in the back seat. I could never sit in the front because I would always think we were going to get in a car crash. You know, it's not part of my toolbox. Um, but alcohol, it works fast. And it's accessible, I guess. Um, definitely something on my radar. We're seeing like a a wave of, you know, with um, sober October and dry January, and and though in our culture alcohol is so front and center, I think there is some commentary around like, wait a minute, this is this is a little insane. It's it's one of the more powerful drugs. It's the most accessible drug. It does the most damage. And, you know, time and time again, these new studies are coming out that say, actually, you know what? We shouldn't be consuming any of this. It's a poison to humans. And we say, oh, great. Okay. We'll have a, a Sauvignon Blanc, please. And, <laughs> and, you know, so it's a little bit of cultural cognitive dissonance. But I... I think it for me, I have to be really aware of it um, because I do have it genetically kind of built in. Just be mindful that it's definitely not a solution and it can be very dangerous. How's your sleep? Has this anxiety affected your ability to sleep well? Um, the, the greatest drug that I use is probably exercise. Exercise is just such a great sleep aid. <laughs> And it's a really basic one. You're just tired, <laughs> it turns out. I will fall asleep really easy, but I will wake up a number of times at night when I'm very anxious. So in terms of like hitting that deep REM, I don't get to that cycle because of the disruptions. Um, but, you know, again, learning over time, which is sort of why in later in life I became a runner, if I'm able to naturally get out and exert some of that energy, uh, it is super helpful in my sleeping. Have you found that the running itself helps with the anxiety? Like an immediate kind of thing where you get this kind of runner's high that, that gives you relief from the anxiety, but it's also indoors even in between runs? Yeah, running is horrible until the first mile is over. And then you think, oh, okay. That's right. I remember why I do this. <laughs> yeah, running is a it's a really interesting tool. It's a it's a it's a really interesting thing altogether. Uh, probably one of the greatest books I've ever read is um, what I talk about when I talk about running. So I, I think that high in some ways is a bit of a myth, but there is like this meditative element when you get into a consistent rhythm with running i say consistent because if you aren't a runner and you head out this afternoon to go for a run it will absolutely not be in a, a meditative <laughs> experience or enjoyable no it sure wouldn't be for me yeah. <laughs> but if it's something that is useful to you and it, and you can find that it works with consistency uh you know you just get better it's like anything each time it, it's not easy on the body. And I have a really interesting relationship with running, too, because it's, it's, um, it is one of those things that absolutely I find that it helps my anxiety. It's a place where I can burn off energy. It's an incredible time to kind of think. Um, and it's a break from all of the things uh, that are placed right in front of you, parenthood, career, life, <laughs> weather, whatever it is. 
Sure. So speaking of the body, do you have any physical symptoms associated with anxiety? Do you ever get gastrointestinal upset or um, nausea or dizziness or sweating, chest pains? Yep. Uh, when, uh, when I would experience panic attacks, it would start in my fingertips. I would get very tingly. I would kind of feel it in my neck. My heart rate would obviously be the first thing to kind of let me know that something was going on. Heart palpitations is most, I think, significant in my experience. Uh, I call it space head, just general sort of like non-presence. Um, so that's, you know, where you're kind of rolling through the grocery store and you, you kind of forget what you're doing or, <laughs> or why you're there or mm-hmm. uh, not disassociation, but just like you're just your feet are just not necessarily planted on the earth. You're uh-huh. just a little bit above it. Stomach stuff, not just kind of loss of appetite and, you know, some like irritable bowel stuff when I'm like really in it. Yeah. When if if you had not that you would do this, but if I said to you, what could you do right now that you know for sure would cause you to have a panic attack? So in my life it's always been anticipation that's worse than the actual thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's been a lot of times speaking engagements where Leading right up to it, it's like the world is is crashing. And that's that tingliness, that's that disassociation, that's my heart is slamming through my throat. But then it's like once I get into that, I'm like, oh, that's right. I remember how to speak. Yeah, the anticipation (laughs) of, uh, of what being in front of people and what being judged or evaluated, what will they think of how I look or how I sound or do I sound like I know what I'm talking about? Is that, is that what? Absolutely. I would say a fair percentage of my life, there's been a kind of obsessive concern about, uh, how I come across to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, speaking engagement, that's you're naked on stage. (laughs) <laughs> you're, you're fair you're fair game to be judged in every single way funny enough you're probably doing more judging than anyone else in the room oh absolutely yeah we're much harder on ourselves than than others are on us um, most of the time without a doubt so I heard you mention trauma is it something you're comfortable talking about was there any history of abuse or what type of trauma are we talking about you know, there's certainly some emotional scar tissue, uh, and and again, in hindsight, a lot of a lot more emotional abuse um, than I could uh, articulate then, or even kind of knew what was going on. But it sounds like you have a pretty good grasp on on what's what it's been for you and what it's meant to you. You've taken a lot of steps to increase your self awareness and. Do what is needed to help yourself, and you're, you know, a few steps ahead of many who who just suffer in silence with this or avoid getting help and never sort of break that barrier. You mentioned the I, I liked how you described the the, the self help section in the bookstore. <laughs> the self centered section. The, <laughs> the self centered section. Do you have a favorite self help book? that you that kind of stands out for you as mm. having been particularly useful the highly sensitive person was a book that was really helpful to me um, i think much of my kind of academic experience especially early in life was it was really hard for me um, and it, it didn't need to be but we know a lot more now in that book, every page, I felt like I was like, "Oh my God, th- this like could be about me." <laughs> um, uh, the Naked Mind is an incredible book uh, about alcohol, uh, which I highly recommend. Another book which I mentioned earlier, which may be specific to runners, but is what I talk about when I talk about running, and that's a Murakami book. Um, Another great, more recent book, which I really recommend to anyone in a relationship, but also anyone you know with deep friendships or with family, is uh, Getting to Zero, 
uh, which is Jason Gaddis. It strikes me that a young person who's been struggling with anxiety since an early age and through high school um, and college, that you didn't hold yourself back, that you kind of pushed through and you, you went to New Zealand and you went to New York City and you took that job. Was that a conscious decision to kind of counter your anxiety and challenge yourself to do those things or... Yes. Was it not that? Am I overthinking it? No, I don't think so. There's layers, though. One layer is that mask that you kind of put on to push through and, and say, like, I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to accept that this holds me back. And the second layer is acceptance in being like, well, this is sort of my experience. So, like, I'm either going to decide not to do something or I'm going to just do it anyhow. And both of those things were true. So for a long time, I really wore that mask. I think I can often come across as one thing to a lot of people, and then when they get to know me, they're like, I kind of had you pegged wrong. Mm -hmm. So who you are at your core is what? More of a maverick or? Uh, more of a creator. A creator. I like to be at the helm and the question of, well, can you be at the helm or do you need to follow someone has always been in the mix and eventually just had to kind of say like, well, let's, let's try to grab the wheel and see how it goes. Yeah. So you're a, an individualist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I, so the arts, music, they were my loves all through my life. And I denied a lot of those, uh, from an extracurricular perspective, from you know a schooling perspective, because I thought I had to kind of be this thing. I thought that would be, you know, I, I, I should get a job in an office. I should do these things. That's like a picture of success. And, Fit the mold. And, and that was the mask. What did you major in in college? Uh, communications. So not, not too uh -huh. far off from where I landed. Right, right. Um, and actually, I went to college and I played lacrosse for the first two years. Uh, and I remember the practice where I was like, I, uh, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> and it was for a lot of different reasons. I'm still in touch with a lot of those teammates. The team part came really easy to me. But it was only then when I stopped that sort of chapter, that like schooling in my junior and senior year of college and kind of the communications departments and some really amazing professors. This this one professor in particular, Todd Wemmer, who I just I I hadn't had that type of academic inspiration or the academic freedom to sort of be like, oh no, not everyone does this the same way, and that being like okay, uh, and that's when writing was introduced to me as, as something that was a helpful, but b I could I could succeed in writing. So that mask started to lift a bit. Are there any sort of pivotal experiences or stories about your journey with mental health uh, that you want to share that are important to talk about? Uh, it's all kind of pivotal <laughs> because it's all really just been a journey and um, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting here like waving back at the parade. It's really still a journey and will will always be. For me, last year was when I really, really accepted that and kind of just meditated on that as like... In Miami? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like shed this from my being. Um, so I have to really to be a good father, to be a good partner, uh, to be, you know, what I consider successful, I have to, I have to learn how to work with it and just be smarter about that because it's, it's easy to try to take shortcuts. Shortcuts? Like what? Well, I think, you know, I think alcohol, I think relying uh, on a, a medication as being the, the solution not doing things because you know your anxiety has sort of taken over the the response uh, so shortcuts in the way that don't allow you to be your whole self you mean uh, when you with reference to what you just said about medication you mean that it's not the sole solution that is part of us it's part of 
a solution. It's one tool. Yeah, it's just it's one aspect of... And that anxiety doesn't define you, right? You're not a diagnosis. You're a husband. You're a father. You're a businessman. You're a creative. Um, you're a musician. You're a podcast producer. You're so many things to so many people. The fact that you're trying to manage anxiety while you're being all of those things um, doesn't make you any less normal, quote unquote. Yeah. If I was to leave anyone with a takeaway, you know, if I was to tell someone who is really like in it and really struggling with it and possibly to the point where like it feels a little bit hopeless, which at some stages it does, is to just say like it, it, it doesn't define you. It's the interesting thing about labels because in, in, in many ways, getting a diagnosis and having something to call this thing that you've been, you know, fighting with for potentially years, um, just knowing that it is something and it is, you know, it, now it has a name, that can be very assuring for some people and actually help them to feel better. But absolutely in, right. In other ways, it can it can be, um, and it's it it can be a false concept. You know, um, the DSM is an attempt to try to categorize and describe mental health symptoms and and to organize them in such a way that uh, you know we have um, a systematic way of uh, describing and, and uh, assigning diagnoses, but most mental health disorders, unlike something like um, as concrete as, say, uh, a fracture, you know, you, you fall, slip and fall, and maybe break a, a, your wrist, you take an x-ray, you can see the fracture, it's there, there's no question about it. It's much more binary, much more concrete in that right. kind of situation. In mental health uh, disorders, though, most things run along a spectrum, a continuum from, yes, perfectly normal, you know, a small amount of anxiety in appropriate settings that can actually be helpful, that can actually motivate you to uh, get something done or keep you out of danger. Um, uh, but then... At the opposite end of the spectrum, anxiety that's so severe that it interferes with your ability to function uh, in, 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 in life. So, and most uh, mental health disorders are like that. The labels can be a kind of false concept as well, you know, um, but they, they're mostly helpful, except when we give them too much, we, we overvalue them, give them too much importance. Yeah, and frankly, I think I was giving them a lot of power, mm -hmm. you know, inward to, to kind of judge myself. Um, and I didn't want them because I was, a, I was letting them define me. So when we're trained as psychiatrists and you, um, you're evaluated by a board... You immediately fail if you leave out one important question from your interview. <laughs> so, I'm going to ask you, has there ever been a time when you've thought about not wanting to go on living or wanting to end your own life? So, the, the short answer is, is no. It's that because, oddly, I've experienced a lot of suicide in my kind of ecosystem uh, from a young age. You know, it, <laughs> this is sort of embarrassing, but it's true. At eight years old, um, Kurt Cobain's suicide was like a, a really, really significant uh, factor sure. in my life. Um, and I remember with my mom, like, just talking a lot about that. We actually went to, like, uh, grief groups because it was, like, really traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, that and impacted a lot of people. Yeah, and then suicide has always kind of come up in my life and um fortunately i would say you know i think i think everyone thinks through at some point like the the f the inner workings of that and how wild of a concept that is but it's never come up as a option for me a viable option it hasn't felt um like 
a route that I would ever take. Uh, that's not to say that I I can't understand how someone could get there. And I think it's something that's really, really kind of out of hand at the moment. I think a lot of it speaks to just culturally how we're pacing and, and how things are changing so quickly uh, that it's it's hard for people to cope. I can certainly understand how you hit a certain point of being so overwhelmed uh, that that feeling of hopelessness can be really, really strong. Sure. Well, I'm glad it's not gotten there for you. Do you have any words of advice for any young people who might be struggling? Uh, I sort of think the state should be issuing everyone a therapist when they're born <laughs> uh, because it, it or federally because uh, for me, talk therapy and cognitive behavioral you know therapy has been such a positive experience. Um, the thing is that like it's true, things are just moving so, so fast and changing at the moment that. Uh, some of these ideas, you know, and, and these feelings and these things we're going through culturally should be discussed more openly. And, and so I think talking is positive. Well, I'm really grateful for the fact that you were willing to talk so openly and share your experiences with me and with our listeners today. And so thank you so much. And, and, uh, Whatever this journey has been like for you and whatever ups and downs you've been through, I'm glad it led you to the place where you're at today and that um, we're able to produce Psyched for Mental Health. I've been looking forward to this conversation, so this was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a companion to webshrink.com. Visit webshrink.com where you'll find original, trustworthy, and authoritative content to help you find the answers you need about mental health and addiction. Mental health professionals and facilities list yourself in WebShrink's provider directory. Go to webshrink.com and click list your practice. The Psych for Mental Health podcast was written and produced by Dr. Ed Bellotti co-production and sound editing by Nathan Tower and Aaron Devereaux at Nonsensible Productions in Portland, Maine.